Take out your Bibles. Begin turning to Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 24, page 10 in the Pew Bible. Genesis chapter 14, page 10. Last week, we learned that God always does what he says. We saw him preserve and perform his promises. God is both the promise making and the promise keeping God. He has made great promises to Abram and those promises have brought Abram great blessing. But we saw that those promises also ended up bringing the separation of Lot from Abram as those promises brought Lot and Abram into conflict. But Abram trusted the Lord. He pursued peace as he offered up the land to Lot. Lot chose what appeared to him to be the better land, moving outside of the land of promise, moving near Sodom. And Lot's choice and move are what set the stage for the action of chapter 14, as Lot is going to find himself in trouble and Abram is going to have to rescue Lot. You're going to see, if you're looking at the ESV or the Pew Bible, you're going to see that heading there above the chapter, Abram rescues Lot. Most of the headings are pretty good and helpful, generally giving you a pretty good idea of the main idea of the text. But this one, I think, isn't particularly helpful. Yes, Abram does rescue Lot. But that is not the point of this story. Lot is not the point of this story. Last week, I mentioned, somewhat in passing, the four most used nouns in the Old Testament. The first, of course, isn't hard to guess. The first is God, but the second is somewhat surprising. Israel would be a good guess, but Israel is actually third. The second most used noun in the Old Testament is king. And I attempted to connect that to the promises that God has made to Abram. God has promised to make Abram into a great nation. Nation requires people. People, plural, requires first a son, singular. So the promise is about offspring or seed. But then we saw that, that God expands that out a little bit when we get to chapter 17, verse 6, where he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. There's the people, there's the seed and kings shall come from you. So the promise of the seed also includes in some way the promise of kings. And surely by now, I don't need to repeat myself about the importance of repetition in understanding what an Old Testament text is all about. And in chapter 14, we get a frequency of repetition, the likes of which we have not yet seen. We do not have to guess what this passage is about. It is forcing us to interpret it in a certain way when in the first 10 verses, it repeats one word 22 times, 28 times in the whole chapter. And that word is king. King is king of chapter 14. Whatever we do with this passage, it has to relate to kings. We're going to meet nine kings and then we're going to see Abram victorious over those kings. The kings are great, but Abram is greater. He is the greater king that gains the victory over all the other kings. So big idea, God gives victory over the world through his king. In this instance, through Abram. But then, sort of out of nowhere, we're going to meet a tenth king, Melchizedek, which literally means king of righteousness, a mysterious king that we're going to see is even greater than Abram. And then a mysterious king 
that we're going to see in a very unique way points us forward to Christ, the greatest king. So last week, we closed by looking at God's true and better promises. This week, we look at God's true and better king, anticipating the true and better king, the one about whom all the promises are referring, the one who brings fulfillment to all the promises. God saves through the king. Your only hope of salvation is rescue by the king and submission to the king. I want you to see how superior God's king is to the various kings of this world. Again, I know that we don't have kings. Our last king, George III, wasn't so hot. Uh, But we do have leaders. We do have peoples of influence. We do have people that our world ascribes significance and power and authority to. And you are tempted to love these people, to submit to them, and to love what they tell you to love. Some of them seem great. Some of them seem powerful and attractive. I want us to see how God's king and ultimately how Christ the king is infinitely greater and infinitely more powerful and infinitely more attractive. Let's read this War of the Kings and see how Abram points us forward to the king of kings. We're going to do the whole chapter. It's a little bit long. It's not too bad. Uh, Bear with me on the names. I've been practicing. I've been doing my best. There's a lot of names here. And I'm going to read for you Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 1 all the way through to the end. But pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Imim in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkel and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. 
Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. If you would, bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, this word is a unique word. This is a word full of many names. This is a word full of, of history and international affairs. Um, Father, this is history, and I pray that you would help us to see that you are the God of this history. I pray that you would help us to see your hand behind this story. I pray that you would help us understand what the point of this story is and how it reveals yourself to us, how it opens our eyes to your greatness and to the greatness of of your king. Father, we believe that your word is living and active. We believe that your word will not return uh, to you void. Father, I confess that that is my only hope in this time. Father, I ask uh, that you would work uh, through your word. I ask that my words would be um, true to your word, that they would faithfully uh, preach the point of your word, and that you would use your word by your spirit to open our eyes to draw us to Jesus Christ, to change us, to shape us, to do what needs to be done in each of our hearts. Father, only you can do that. So I ask now that you would work through your word for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one, we start with the kings of the earth. There are a lot of them, nine in the first part of the chapter, and they are great. In verse one, we are introduced to the first four of these kings. Uh, we're not entirely sure who these kings are. There's been attempts to connect them to Hammurabi and various other kings that we know of. Uh, we're just not exactly sure. We see that the first comes from Shinar. Remember, we saw Shinar back in chapter 10, verse 10, where Nimrod begins his kingdom in the land of Shinar. Then in chapter 11, verse 2, the people migrated uh, eastward. East, east is bad, remember? And they settled in the land of Shinar where they build the Tower of Babel. Uh, Shinar is Babylon. So this would be modern day Iraq. Uh, the third guy and the leader of the coalition, Keterleomer, is from Elam, which is in modern day Iran, next door and a little bit further east of Iraq. And the other two are a bit harder to place. Most likely, they are located more up in modern day Turkey. So if you're able to pull up a map of the Middle East in your mind, we see many of these ancient civilizations arising and thriving in what is called the Fertile Crescent. You remember you have big Saudi Arabia, you have Africa, and then big Saudi Arabia right there, and a lot of it is just taken up with big old Arabian 
desert. You can't live in giant desert. Don't travel through the giant desert. But east of that, and then up and north and around the desert, you have the Tigris and Euphrates. I'm doing it backwards. I'm doing it for you. right? The Tigris and the Euphrates. That's Mesopotamia. That's where the water is. Water equals life. So all of these kings seem to come from this area. But it's a large area, and it's important to note, it is an area distant from, east of, and outside of the promised land. So those are the first four kings. Then in verse 2, we're introduced to five more kings, including, for our purposes, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now these seem to be five smaller and closer, more like city-states. And these are just south and east of the Dead Sea. They're right next to and just outside of the promised land. And for the first time in the Bible, we have mention of war. This word is used 319 times in the Old Testament. This is the first one. There were probably wars before this, but this is the Bible's first mention of a war. And it's four on five. That's a lot of armies. I'm about to finish up reading The Hobbit with the girls. And we're coming to the very end. And it's the battle of five armies. Men and elves and dwarves versus goblins and wargs. It's so good. You should read Tolkien. Fathers, you should be a good dad and read The Hobbit to your kids. Reading aloud is a lost art. Do it. That is a side note. That's not the point. But if that was a large battle of five armies, this is the battle of nine armies. And in verse 3, we see that the first four kings have brought the battle to the second five kings. This battle happens in their territory. We're just south of the Dead Sea. Why? Why travel all of that way to attack these kings? Verse 4, because for 12 years they had been serving Keterleomer. These little kings were vassals of this big king. And this was pretty normal back then. A more powerful king would assert his authority over a less powerful king and subdue him. But he would then leave him in place, allow him to continue his reign as king as long as he paid tribute and tax to the conquering king. And this would have been very valuable tribute. There isn't really metal in the Middle East. You're just not going to find it there. A lot of desert is a different kind of terrain. You're not going to find metal. So these kings of Babylon and Persia have to bring their metal in. There was metal around the Dead Sea, particularly copper. Big growing empires need metal. They need their taxes. They need tribute. So war is worth it. Because, back to verse 4, after 12 years, the five tribute-paying kings rebelled, meaning they stopped paying tribute. And so the four kings come. Verses 5 through 7 trace their route south. They are traveling down what is appropriately called the king's highway, and they are conquering everyone as they go. These kings are great. This is an international affair. These are the major players on the world stage, and it seems that nothing can stop them. They go where they want, they do what they want, and they take what they want. And in verses 8 and 9, they finally arrive at their intended destination. They've laid waste to everyone before, they have demonstrated their might, they have intimidated their enemies, and they have defeated anyone who could possibly come to the aid of these five kings. And so now the battle commences. End of verse 9, four kings against five. 
and it's a rout. The superior number five against four is unimportant. These are four kings of large empires versus five kings of small city-states. And so look at verse 10. We're not told much. It seems that there just wasn't much to tell. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the four put the five to flight. It seems that there's no contest. And for some reason, we're given this detail about the bitumen pits. Or if you're reading the King James, it says slime pits. Uh, I like that. My girls love slime. Melissa and I are not fans of slime. Um, but a bitumen pit, it's, it's like a, it's a tar pit. Uh, a bitumen is it's asphalt. It's a sticky, semi-solid form of petroleum. It right? sounds like something that you probably don't want to get stuck in. And so it's a little bit unclear from the text. Either the retreating armies are falling into these pits and dying as they retreat, or it's possible to translate it as if they're purposefully jumping into them and in some way hiding in them or using them as protection. Either way, the point is that the five lose to the four. And so to the victor go the spoils. Look at verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their provisions and went their way. Verse 12. Here's the point. All of that was just to get to verse 12. This whole story is here because of verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So we're back to Lot. Silly Lot. Uh, last week, we saw his foolish choice. He chose what he thought was the choice land. He chose poorly. He trusted his eyes. He leaned on his own understanding. He had moved near Sodom in 13. Here we see that he is already now living in Sodom. He seems to be both in Sodom and of Sodom. And now he is a prisoner on his way probably to be a slave in a foreign land because the kings of the earth are great. I mean, that, this is true, isn't it? Right? The kings of the earth are great. And, and how many of us kind of get caught up in this, how many of us are allured by this? Again, we don't have that many kings today, but we're still somewhat obsessed with the idea of royalty. We still watch the crown. We still, for some reason, care about what's going on with Harry and Meghan. We don't have very many kings, maybe, but we sure love our athletes and our celebrities. About a 100 million of us watched the Super Bowl last week which makes that the 11th most watched TV show ever. Do you know what nine of the other 10 are? Super Bowls. <laughs> 10 of the first 11 are Super Bowls. The lone non-Super Bowl is the series finale of MASH. Apparently that show was huge. It ended uh, the year before I was born, so I don't know. Um, but do you know how many people watched the State of the Union address on Tuesday? Every network is showing it. On all the networks combined, you know how many people watched that? 37 million. Now listen, I, you know I love football, and you know I don't particularly care for politics, but about 100 million people for a football game compared to only 37 for the most important speech of the year does seem to be a pretty telling indication of where we are as a culture. Athletes and celebrities are kings. Consider how our culture has responded to the death of Kobe Bryant. Any death is a tragedy, of course, but consider how our culture has responded. I can't think of anything like it 
in my lifetime. The closest thing that came to my mind was the death of Princess Diana back in 97. Again, sort of royalty, but more like celebrity. We are celebrity obsessed. They are our kings, and we follow them. We look to them. We listen to them. We emulate them. We consider them to be the pinnacle of success, the pinnacle of greatness. The kings of the world are great, or at least they seem great. They appear to be great. There is an appearance of beauty and of power and of success in the world's eyes. And according to the world's standards, they are great. But what about God's? Let's go back to our story. Point number two. Abram is the greater king. And again, all of that is just to get us here. All of the international intrigue, the world players, the movers and the shakers, the great displays of power, all merely the setting, the context, the background to get us to the main thing. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. So here we are. Abram. Notice this, Abram the Hebrew. This is a chapter of many firsts. That's the first time that designation is used in the Bible. Probably an ethnic designation connecting Abram through Eber, Hebrew, Eber, back in chapter 10, verse 21, connecting him to Shem, right? the, the chosen line, the, the one through whom the seed of promise would come. So the point is, this is God's man. This is God's chosen one in God's chosen land. And now kings have come down around the land, defeated enemies just outside at the bottom of his land and have kidnapped his nephew and have now marched back up through his land on a sort of Super Bowl victory parade. And this is important, and I don't want you to miss this. We only know about all of these supposedly great and powerful kings because they have stumbled onto Abram's turf. God's focus is not the world's focus. God's attention is not on those whom the world's attention is on. We see all of these kings and we are impressed. We are impressed by power. We've all been caught up on the political proceedings uh, going on in D.C. And we cannot help but think that that's where the action is. That's what matters. That's where decisions are made and futures are forged or destroyed. That's the big time. It's what's happening in the NYC's, the D.C.'s. And the LA's. And so all the news focuses there. And then all of our attention focuses there. And thus we desperately need this reminder that that doesn't necessarily mean then that God's attention is focused there. It's not. It's like the first 12 verses of our chapter, simply the introduction, the context, the background to this, to what's going on here. God's focus is always on his people. God's concern is with where his people are and what they are doing. We think that's the important stuff when actually this is the important stuff. Small, little, seemingly insignificant Woodside Community Church and thousands of other churches across this country and across this world where God's people are gathering to serve him and to worship That's God's focus. We've been so conditioned by the world to delight in and desire the great. But what if what the world has defined as greatness isn't great at all? What if the Tom Brady's and the Beyonce's and the LeBron's and the Kardashian's or the whoever's of the world aren't actually great at all? God defines greatness differently. 
His focus is not on the kings of the world, but his people in the world. And here it is seemingly insignificant Abram that is actually the greater king. The five kings are strong. The four kings are stronger. Abram is stronger than all of them. Look at verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. A couple of quick things. Uh, first off, uh, like last week, where we had to clarify that being wealthy is not necessarily bad, here we need to clarify that war is not necessarily bad. There is such a thing as just war. There is are times when it is right for men to take up arms to fight evil and to defend the weak. And it sure seems like Abram is ready to do this, doesn't it? It doesn't seem like he's kind of scrambling, oh no, what are we going to do? And he grabs the farmers and he grabs the houses. Come on, guys, we've got to try to do something here. No, it seems like he's ready. These men are trained. Abram would have been the one responsible for making sure that happens. Abram, the man of peace in chapter 13, when necessary, is willing to become Abram, the man of war in chapter 14. Abram, the man passively trusting God in chapter 13, when necessary, is willing to become the man of action in chapter 14 as he immediately jumps into the fray to protect and save his family. Listen, men, this is what we do. Sometimes we have to fight. We protect. We put ourselves in the way of harm for the good of others. And that's a good thing. We had an utterly ridiculous experience on Thursday. Some of you know about it already. Uh, we had a lot of people. We had a lot going on. People coming over. Uh, our house is a wreck after a day of homeschooling. So we're always frantically cleaning before people are coming over. And somehow, three-year-old Nora gets her index finger stuck in a tiny hole in the bottom of a metal bucket. No idea what she was doing, but it was stuck. I tried lotion, I tried Dawn, I tried butter, nothing. And I was pulling hard, and it started to cut into her finger and to bleed, so I couldn't keep pulling. We tried cutting it off, we couldn't get it, it was metal. So we did what we usually do when we are in a medical situation, is we called Tabitha. Tabitha talked to Ruth, and then she got back to me and said, take her to the fire department. What? I thought that was crazy. I was skeptical. I was of little faith. But I went. That's what faith does. I ultimately trusted Tabitha and Ruth, and I obeyed. And so I walked Nora to the fire department. I kind of meekly rang the little bell, standing there like, what? And Nora was like, hey, kind of got this. I don't know. And they pulled us in, and they were amazing. I think it had to be every single one of the men there, about a dozen of them, big men, strong men, crowded around while I'm holding Nora, and they leapt into action. They had these special metal cutters, um, and they're carefully cutting up right as close to her finger as they can, and I'm really nervous about that. They don't seem to be nervous about it. There's two over here while she's screaming, distracting her with a pink donut and a fireman's hat, and then there's two others here as he's cutting with their bare hands. Each have one in, and they're ripping the metal apart off of and around her finger. I was so impressed, and they were so amazing. It was the same guys who were here two weeks ago uh, to come in and help Miss Linda. So we talked about that. It was really neat. We got to talk uh, about the church and everything. Um, but these guys were awesome. They were calm under pressure. They were strength under control. They were strength used to protect and serve. And it got me thinking about a great article I just read days before um, about the firemen who ran into the Twin Towers on 9-11 while everyone else was running out of 
the towers. You can find it. It's a Wall Street Journal article by Peggy Noonan titled Courage Under Fire. And she's writing about how we're not supposed to say firemen anymore because that's not politically correct. But she says these were firemen. She writes, we're all supposed to say firefighter, but they were all men, great men. And fireman is a good word. Firemen put out our fires and save people. They take people who can't walk and sling them over their shoulders like a sack of potatoes and take them to safety. That's what they do for a living. You think to yourself, do we pay them enough? You realize we couldn't possibly pay them enough. 343 of them died uh, on 9-11. All of them firemen. All of them men. Again, this is not a knock on women. This is just what men are supposed to do. Protect and care and die for others. I've seen different numbers that estimate that those, the firemen saved upwards of 20,000 lives on that day. I saw one number go as high as 30,000 uh, lives were saved by these men. That's amazing. That's heroic. And that's just what Abram is willing to do. He is willing to run into the fire and to charge and to put himself into harm's way for the good of others. He has 318 men, and it seems that they immediately jump in and go. He's got allies with him, so we don't know exactly what the number is, so it's probably a little bigger than 318, but the point is that there's no way Abram's little force is nearly as big as the size of the force of these four great conquering kings. And yet, without hesitation, he rides out. Sometimes we have to fight to save and protect Others. Look at verses 15 and 16. Here's what he does. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the women and the people. That's it. Abram defeats the kings. No one had been able to stand in their way. They had routed everyone. They had routed five other kings, whole other peoples. And yet, Abram is greater than these great kings. Abram is stronger. How is little Abram stronger? How does this one man with only 318 men defeat this coalition of four armies that have been crushing everyone? Okay, we know the answer. And we're told the answer explicitly if we cheat down and peek at verse 20. Blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. See, Abram is greater because, because God is greater. Abram is victorious because of God and because kings are nothing to God. The greatest kings of the earth. Well, go read Psalm chapter 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's king is always greater than the world's. And not only does God laugh at the futility of the kings of the earth, but he is so much greater than them that they are as but the puppets in his hand. And is that going too far? I don't think so. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. See, it's God's will that ultimately determines the king's will. 
Listen to verses 30 and 31 of Proverbs 21. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Abram's victory belongs to the Lord. He is greater because God is greater. In this story of all of these great kings, the point is that Abram is the true and better king. Remember the promises of the covenant. A seed, which we saw in chapter 17, includes a king. So we have a people, we have a king, and what's the other part of the promise? A land. What do you get when you have a people, a king, and a land? You get a kingdom. And Abram is God's king. He is greater than all the kings of the earth. Except for what? Except the story goes on. After 16 verses of Abram's greatness by grace, overcoming, overcoming the nine kings, all of a the sudden, there's a tenth king. Point number three, Melchizedek is a greater king than Abram. Listen, that may not sound that significant to us, but it should. Uh, this would have sounded very significant uh, to Jewish people. Abram was the father. Abram was the guy. He was the greatest. And so to all of a sudden say that there is someone greater than Father Abraham is no small thing. Now look at verses 17 and 18. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. Stop there. We're just going to have to ignore uh, the king, defeated king of Sodom. He, he comes in, he tries to re reassert his authority. He makes an offer to Abram. Abram rejects it. Abram wants nothing to do with the defeated, wicked king. Abram wants no help from Sodom. He wants no, notice the difference between Abram and Lot. Abram wants no connection with Sodom. He will continue to trust the Lord to take care of him. So ignore the king of Sodom. Don't ignore the king of Salem. Don't ignore Melchizedek. I went back and forth. We probably should have done a whole sermon on Melchizedek. Um, I decided to try to do it all together. We'll see. His name is literally the word, two words for king and righteousness shoved together. So his name literally means king of righteousness, who is also then the king of Salem, which means peace. So he is king of righteousness and peace. He's reigning on the throne of Salem, which is Jerusalem. What does he do? Look at 19 and 20. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And guys, there's just, there are so, so many questions we could seek to answer and so many fun rabbit holes that we could dive down uh, as we try to understand Melchizedek. I'm going to try not to do that. The basic point is that there is another king. We don't know a whole lot about him. He is both very mysterious and very important. When the author of Hebrews first introduces Melchizedek in chapter 5, verses 6 and 10, he pauses for a bit and then says in verse 11, you know, about this, I have much to say, and it is hard to explain. And so then he like takes a break for a while before he comes back to Melchizedek in chapter 7. Let's turn there and look at that. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, you can find that on page 1004. 
Hebrews 7. And we know so little about this king. Yet, I am claiming that he is a king greater than Abram. Why? Well, if you're looking at 7, verses 1 through 3, summarize what we just kind of read. Well, look at verse 4. See how great this man, Melchizedek, was. Well, what indication do we have of this greatness? Well, the rest of the verse. To whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Notice again, in the New Testament, it calls him Abraham only when he's still Abram, technically. So we're justified in calling him Abram. The New Testament does it. So that's picking up back on, on the fact that back in Genesis 14, 20, after Abram comes victorious to the victor, goes the spoils. Abram have, has all the spoils. He's not going to keep them. But he first gives a tenth of everything that he won in battle to Melchizedek. And then that word uh, tenth is the word tithe. And so again, we have a first. This is the first time tithe, tithe is used in the Bible. This is not a sermon on tithing. Uh, the author of Hebrews picks up on this, though, as an indication of who is greater. The lesser tithes to the greater. And then it points out in verse 6 that it is Melchizedek who not only receives tithes from Abram, but also gives blessing to Abram. And so verse 7 says, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So Melchizedek is a greater king than Abram. Who is he? Who knows? Uh, many Jewish commentators uh, say that he was Noah's son, Shem. Shem, Noah's son, would have still been alive at this point. But there's nothing in the text that indicates that's true. Plus, Shem has a genealogy. Look back at Hebrews 7 verse 3, describing Melchizedek again. This is mysterious. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. That's a little strange. No father or mother, no beginning or end, no genealogy. And so some take this very literally to mean that Melchizedek is actually, well, a fun word for you today, a Christophany. Or just a fancy word, which just means a pre-incarnate appearing of Christ. They argue that Melchizedek, in uh, resembling the Son of God, must actually be the Son of God. I find that fascinating and interesting and it's fun to speculate. I just don't think that's the case. I don't think that he is. The point in verse 3 is that in Genesis, remember that word literally means genealogies, this book of genealogies, the fact that Melchizedek in genealogies is not given a genealogy is significant. It, it sets him apart from all the other guys. He is something different. He is something superior. We saw at the end of chapter 11 that it seems like there's just no one left. No one still faithfully worshiping and serving the Lord. But we know that that's not entirely true. We know that there is Job. We don't know exactly when Job lived, but it's sometime around the time of Abraham and the patriarchs. It's around this period, and we don't know where he comes from or what his connection is. And now we have Melchizedek here. So God is always preserving for himself a remnant. Right? All is never lost with God. Isaiah says, oh, I'm the only one. And God says, no, no, no. Here's a remnant. Here's others. So, Though we cannot answer all the questions we would like 
about Melchizedek. And I, did, I specifically didn't do a whole sermon on it because I was trying to not just take a whole sermon of fun speculation about this important figure. But we can answer the one important question. We can answer why he is here. We can answer why he is a greater king than Abram. And it's because he is not only a king. Like this is, again, as I mentioned, the chapter of many firsts. First war, first Hebrew, first tithe, and most importantly, first priest. Melchizedek was king, but he was also priest, first time that's used, of the Most High God. And we've seen Genesis 14, we've seen Hebrews 5 and 7. There's only one other spot in the whole Bible that Melchizedek shows up in, but it's an important spot. And we read it earlier in the service, Psalm 110, the most Quoted psalm in the New Testament. Page 509, if you want to look there. We just read it. Psalm 110 is written by King David. We don't know exactly when. Probably it's written after David takes Jerusalem. Remember, Saul never took Jerusalem. So Saul never sat on the throne of Salem. Thus, David is the first king who also is the king of Salem. And this Psalm 110, probably written after he takes Jerusalem, everyone recognizes is a messianic psalm. The New Testament uses it over and over again about Christ. is here to point us forward to the one who would come, the promised one, a king. And so David, the king, writes, as Jesus points out, David says, the Lord, all caps, says to my Lord. In other words, God, Yahweh, speaks to someone who is greater than David. David's Lord and says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. So this Lord, this Messiah will rule. He is not David. Uh, he will be a king after David. He will rule on the throne of Jerusalem, but he's not only a king Verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This king will also be a priest. And while those that argue that Melchizedek is Christ are wrong, they are at least on the right track because the whole point of Melchizedek is not Melchizedek. The whole point of Melchizedek is to point us forward, to serve as a type, to prepare us for the one to come, Jesus Christ. And so final point, Christ is the greatest king. The point is not that Melchizedek is Christ, but that he anticipates Christ and that he is both king and priest. And that's what we don't have time to go through Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, and 8. That's what that whole section of Hebrews is all about. It's all about the priesthood. We need a better priesthood. And we all of us, Desperately need and long for a king. First of all, we need someone above us. We were created to serve a power greater than us, a good and benevolent power. Listen, that's why you follow celebrities on instant media. Or, or, what's it called? Social media. See, it's good. I so hate it that I don't even know what it's called anymore. That's sanctification. Um, no, but the fact that we are so obsessed and follow these people of power and position and greatness is to some degree a related to this, that this is wired into you. You're wired into your need for something greater than you and above you that you could be a part of and that you could submit to. You're just looking in the wrong place. 
We need a king. We need the king. But the kings of the earth utterly fail. Abram is better than them. But Melchizedek is better than him. But Christ is better than all of them. Because he is the king of both perfect power and perfect goodness. But that raises a problem for us. You can get along just fine with the kings of this world because they're all terrible too. This king isn't. He is perfectly good. We are not. We've been seeing it since Genesis 3. We have all of us rejected this king and rebelled against this king. And like Adam and Eve, evicted from the garden, cast out of the place of the presence of God, we are all of us separated from this good king. Sin separates, which means we need something or someone to solve our separation. We need someone to reunite us. God is over there. We have put ourselves over here. We need someone to go between. We need someone to bridge the gap. We need a mediator between God and man. That's what a priest is. And that's what a priest does. Melchizedek points us forward to the true and better great priest king to come, who has Come and who has come to die. The priest who is also amazingly the sacrifice. The king who lays down his life so that the subjects can live. That is why Christ is the greatest king. He is the king of all power and authority who uses all that power and authority to serve and save his people by taking their place by taking on the wage of sin, the death debt that they all owe and paying it by dying for them so that they could live. That's greatness. Right? It's, it's power in service. It's the strong saving the weak. And that's ultimately what Abram anticipates. He puts himself on the line. He goes and conquers the enemy and he goes and rescues the captives and sets them Free. And that's what Melchizedek anticipates even better as the priest who offers sacrifices and who mediates between a holy God and sinful man. And all of these stories progressively reveal to us what God is doing and how he is going to save his sinful and wayward people. It will require a conquering king. It will require a mediating priest. It will require a substitutionary sacrifice. And all of these threads come together so beautifully and perfectly in Christ. He is the king that you need. He's the king that you crave. And all of those false cravings that we seek to find and fulfill in these other places are supposed to be there to point you to him. He is the only one that can satisfy you, the only one that can fulfill you, the only one that can save you. And he is the point of Abraham. All of these stories, we're studying Abraham because Abram gets us to Christ and points us to Christ. The promise to Abraham is Christ. He is the king of kings that all other kings are but merely a shadow. And so God gives us this word to teach us that God gives victory over the world through his king. That God saves through his king. That God's king is also God's priest who brings his people back to him. Do you know and love this king? Guys, he is a, he is a kind and he is a gracious king. And in one of the most wonderful verses of the Bible, this king invites you to come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden, and this king will give you rest, rescue, 
restoration, life everlasting in this good king's perfect kingdom. So repent, uh, believe, stop pursuing and loving and serving the kings of the world, love and serve the good and greater king who died to serve and save you. If you would, uh, let's close uh, with a word of prayer. Bow with me, please. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that your word is so much better than my words. And so I pray now that it would be your word that would be the focus of our hearts and our minds at this moment. Father, I pray now that you would do that which is impossible for me to do or for any of us to do. I pray that you would apply your word to our hearts. I pray that you would correct us where we need to be corrected. I pray that you would lead us into repentance, Father, where we need to repent. Father, most importantly, I pray that you would open our eyes to the glory of your great King, uh, Jesus Christ. Father, forgive us for how caught up we are by the things that the world tells us are great. Forgive us for how much more of our time we give to the things of the world than we give to you and to your great King. Father, use your word. Use each other, Father, as we encourage one another with your word to show us what really matters, to show us what true greatness is, to show us what this world and this life is, is all about. And I pray that you would help us to learn to love the King and to learn to live for the King. Father, I pray that you would do that in us and for us now. We ask and we pray this in the name of the King. Amen.